Thank you, Bobby, and good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. My name is Stephen, as Bobby mentioned. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful to open the Word of God to us this morning on the first Sunday of the year. You're here, and you made it. First Sunday of the year, uh, starting off the year on a strong foot of being uh, gathering with God's people, sitting under the word that it might feed us and sanctify us more into his glory. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 this morning? Philippians chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> a couple more sermons in Philippians. Uh, in two Sundays, uh, we will be observing as a church the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, and on that Sunday, we'll have three men from our church uh, each preach for 10 to 15 minutes uh, on different aspects of looking at abortion. So one will come up and look at the history of abortion in the United States, um, the history of abortion. Someone will come up next and look at the biblical position on abortion. Uh, and then Pastor Bobby will come up after those two and look at the pastoral response uh, and how do we as the church uh, look at the subject of abortion. It's affected us in uh, many different ways. And so caring for the body, caring for us as God's people in the way that we view such uh, a topic as abortion. And uh, it's not something we want to skirt around, but we want to be walking through it carefully. And uh, we trust uh, these men will do just that. And we're grateful for their willingness to uh, help us in, in a topic like that. And in the beginning of February, we'll begin a series walking through the book of Exodus. And uh, so we'll have a couple books uh, maybe next week or the week after. For those of you that like the scripture journals, uh, it'll have just the text of Exodus and a page to write on. And uh, those will be available in the lobby uh, for those who like those or in the church office and um, want to make those available to you. If you would stand with me, let's read Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Paul has done this once before in the book, but he does it again here. Finally. We're a little closer to the end than we were the last time. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Do you remember the time when you first started something new? Maybe it was the first day of a new job. Maybe it's driving a car for the very first time. Going to your first day at a new school. Something where everything to you is new. Maybe it was coming to this church for the very first time. New building, new people, new pastors, new everything. You pay attention to all the details. You're slow, maybe, in making your way around, trying to figure out where everything is. Where's the restroom? Where's, where's the coffee? You've got to ask questions. What are we doing next? How many times are we going to stand? How long is the greeting time? You're beginning to figure things out. You're moving around, maybe even sometimes at work, if you're working around machinery, maybe a little clumsy, because you're focusing so much on every step, on every detail, trying to make sure you go to the right place. You don't crash if it's in a car. But before you know it, all of a sudden you're doing these things often without thinking. 
You're doing these things and maybe two or three other things at the same time. That recipe that you really had to focus on the first time or first few times you made it, now you can crank it out while talking on the phone with your mom and also disciplining your children or helping someone else do something. You're able to now put on cruise control. The cruise control feature and doing tasks without really thinking about them is not always a good thing, is it? Sometimes in driving or in other projects or work, but especially not in our spiritual life. When we come to our spiritual life and we can do things without thinking, it becomes a real problem. Now, it's a good thing to have routine and a good thing to have things that we just know. I wake up in the morning and this is what I do. I, I go to that chair and I read this text and I'm on this plan and I do these things and then I'll pray and I know what I'm doing. It's a wonderful. Routine can be wonderful. But when we begin to forget to think about, to analyze, to perceive what it is that we're doing, what it is that we're gaining from, what it is that we're not doing, then there begins to be a bit of staleness. When a person first comes to faith, there is a freshness to their spirit that wants to know what is it that I'm supposed to do? How do I please the Lord? How do I grow in my faith? You're asking questions, you're analyzing, you're looking, you're reading, you're talking and thinking about all of the different things that you might want to learn about and grow in. And there's a genuine excitement. While it could be a good thing to be in a routine, it is not a good thing to do your routine or disciplines of the godly life without thinking about them. More often than I want to admit, I can stop, not stop, and assess where I am and what I'm thinking about. And maybe the same is true for you. Maybe it's hard for us to stop and think, what is it that we are thinking about? How have you gotten where you are in your mind? Have you ever had that conversation with somebody? Somebody asks you what you're thinking about, and then you have to tell them, here's what I'm thinking about, and here's how I got there. To walk them down the path of how your mind works, it can be somewhat scary sometimes to let that out to other people. But beginning to think about what it is we're thinking about. In this text, that's exactly what Paul is writing to the church as he begins to end a section here that began back at the beginning of chapter 4. One where he reaffirms his affection and his love for the church, tells them how much they mean to him, but then he has to do something hard. And that is he has to help two women in the church who are having a disagreement to be able to love one another, and to come together uh, to agree in the Lord. They are believers, and they need to agree in the Lord. It's in this larger context that we come this morning but disagreements that happen with Euodia and Syntyche happen not right there on the spot, not without warning and without thinking. But disagreements start in the mind. You begin to think on things, maybe dwell on untruths, harbor lies that adversely affect your heart that now begins to fear things that it shouldn't, to want things that it should not, and leads to fights and disagreements with others. If what we saw last week, that rejoicing always and being anxious for nothing are irregardless of our circumstances, it doesn't matter what we're facing. But in the light of the gospel, we're able to walk through these difficult circumstances, trusting in God and in His goodness for us, remembering the gospel. Well, that allows us to have joy in the midst of them. That allows us to not be anxious. And if those things are true, then 
We should agree and love one another in the church, no matter what the circumstances are. Did you notice that several weeks ago when we looked at that section, Paul does not mention the details of what caused these ladies to disagree. He doesn't have to. In one sense, it doesn't matter because the circumstances can trip us up all too often. We let situations and other people's actions, we let the weather, traffic, other circumstances that seem minor to cause us to forget who we are. What is our genuine identity? What has God done for us? How ought we to live? Briefly, and this is still our introduction, what we have said in the last few weeks, but we need to be reminded of. Several weeks ago, in looking at the story with Yodi and Syntyche, we need to look at our relationships viewed through the lens of the gospel. These two ladies can, as Christians, must agree in the Lord because the Lord has brought them unto himself. They are no longer their own. They belong to him. Because the Lord can agree with them, they must agree with each other. Circumstances, personalities, situations, all aside, you might never be best friends, and that's okay. You might never open up to them in the same way again, and that's fine. You might have to call the cops on harmful activity that they might be doing, and that's loving. But you still can, as Christians, love them as you would uh, love anyone else because you have been loved by God. Dwell on how God has loved you. Pray that God would allow you to forgive this person as you have been forgiven, and then agree in the Lord. Because I'm glad that God doesn't exact from me every sin and situation to focus on and make sure that I know exactly the ways in which I have wronged him. I'm glad that God doesn't have me under the microscope, always analyzing deeply my faults and failures and reminding me every time that I do something against him, constantly pushing my sin, causing me to feel guilt and shame over and over again. But instead, he put the microscope, if we can use that illustration still, and he put it on his only son. And he put it on his only son because it was his son who bore all the sins that I had done. It was his son who lavished his love on us, draws us to himself, and shows us grace, not pointing out with a finger in our face all the ways in which we've disgraced him. It's God who loves us and overwhelms us with his kindness in Jesus, and we deserved none of it. When we remember that, that helps to restore broken relationships. And not only should the gospel, in remembering the work of God on our behalf, move us to restore relationships, but Paul then says in the next few verses that we looked at last week that it should also move us to be able to live with joy and freedom in the midst of any circumstance. We can rejoice in every situation, not being anxious about things, praying about everything, because we're rooted and settled in the unchanging, overwhelming, and glorious truths that the almighty God himself, maker of heaven and earth, has loved us and redeemed us, has called us to be his child, and is making right now for you and I an eternal home to dwell with him forever in. Marinating in the gospel will infuse our hearts with the truths of the gospel. And your heart, as it marinates on the gospel, will pump out gospel and not fears. It will bleed gospel and not grumbling. 
We cannot forget what God has done for us. Our hearts desperately need to remember. Our relationships desperately need us to remember. And then, not only in interpersonal relationships, not only in our hearts, but now today, in our minds, let us think on the gospel and holy thoughts. I was thinking about this just this morning as we were singing, and soon after, the kids are dismissed uh, off to uh, children's church, and I see all these little ones who are running off to be taught in age-appropriate ways the story of the gospel. And I thought here this morning, as we think of something like what we think about, and saying, what am I thinking about when I think about things? Have you ever thought about what you think about? We can say this in lots of different ways. But I thought that this is actually something every single one of us can do. And it not be something overwhelming where a child might say, I don't have any broken relationships that I know of. I'm not Euodia and Syntyche. Doesn't really apply. Check out. Or they might say, my heart's not really anxious about anything. I don't think about anything. I'm not worried about tomorrow. My parents can take care of that. I'm only focused on what's for lunch, mom. That's going to be taken care of soon enough. But here today, we come to a passage, and while those others have application for children and for everyone, today really does seem to be applicable to all of us, universally, where we all are thinking about things. We all have struggled with thinking about things that we know we shouldn't be thinking about. Thinking about, I don't want to obey my parents. I don't want to wait. They told me to wait. I want what I want, and I want it right now. Most of us, whether you're four or 40, have dealt with things like that. And so I feel like in some way, there's a real universal application for all of us as we think about how do we think about the gospel in regards to our thoughts. Dennis Johnson writes in his commentary on Philippians, Paul knows that the thoughts that occupy our minds and the images that capture our imaginations shape our character and find expression in our behavior. So this is tied, what we're looking at today is tied to what we looked at last week and several weeks before in our relationships, our behavior, and in our character that flows from within us. As Solomon observed, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And Jesus confirmed that the heart's secret thoughts are the foundation from which our outward actions flow. This conversation about our thoughts is not merely just about what I think when no one's around or what I think and nobody knows. It comes out of us. This morning we look at two commands that are given, two imperatives in these two verses. Lots of lists, but two commands. So we'll focus on those. This morning, the two commands are think and practice. Think about these things and practice these things. Think about these things, or if we wanted to alliterate, we could have said ponder these things and practice these things. But in my rebellious streak, I didn't want to alliterate today. So think about these things. Think about these things. Typically in the Greek, when we read and looking at the New Testament, which is written originally in Greek, the verb will be the first word in the sentence, or usually very close to the beginning, stating what is to be done. But here in this verse, you have six phrases, words listed first. These, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, all those things come first. And the very last word of verse eight is the command to think. These are the types of things you should think about. Now think about them. 
Think these thoughts, Christians. What kind of thoughts? The types of things I just said. The list that I just gave you, think on those types of things. All that is, the word can be translated instead of whatever. Whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, all that is, everything that is true, everything that is honorable, everything that is just and pure. I find that that opens up the spectrum a little bit. Instead of just saying, I feel a little bit, oh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. Instead, it's all that is just, all that is lovely, all that is commendable. Think on those things. And that'll be important for us here in just a little bit. All that is, we must be thinking about. We are called, commanded by Paul, the church is to think on things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. We must think about what we think about. Stop and assess, put ourselves, our mind, as it were, under the microscope. Stop and look at what it is you are thinking about. Stop and analyze not someone else's actions, not someone else's actions towards you, but stop and think about your thoughts. Have you ever stopped yourself? Why am I thinking about this? How did I get to this place? How do I stop this? How, where do I go from here? Beginning to think about what it is that we think about. Are we thinking on all that is true and honorable? just, pure, lovely, and commendable? How do we think about the world around us? How do we think about the events that happen, the people we meet, the places we go, and the things that we do? What feeds us with information? What tells us how to think? Where do we get the information from? Do we think about them and how we want to think about them? Do we think about things the way that our parents taught us, a teacher showed us, or a book told us? Have we ever stopped to think about what we think about sometimes? Why is it that you think a waterfall is beautiful? What is it about someone that forms your opinion about them? Why is someone irritating to you? Or what is it that draws you to want to spend time with a different person, another person? Why do you hold strongly to the positions that you do regarding a particular situation? that may be going on in the news right now. What informed that position? Who influenced you about that? And how did they win you over? The reality is that our thoughts are not merely ours alone and no one else's business. And as long as they don't harm anyone, then I can think them and no one can tell me otherwise. That is not true. But here, God, through the Apostle Paul, says that we must think on these things. He tells us what to think about, what kinds of things Christians should allow their minds to dwell on. He tells us what to think about. Do you begin to feel a little bit of a tension rising? Have you felt it already? Maybe this morning as we just began to ask you the question, what do you think about? What you think about? You feel it, this battle that can go on. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to think about. You can't tell me not to think about something. You might be saying to God, you can't tell me what to think about. You already took one morning from my weekend, and now you want my thoughts as well? At least leave a man his thoughts. You can't tell me what to think about. Author Scotty Smith says this, 
Paul wants us to realize our thinking is a relational commitment. Listen to this. Not just a cognitive exercise. Our thoughts will obey someone. They don't just get filled with something. And we easily, as Christians, default to the trinity of me as the Lord of my thinking. When this happens, my rights, my fears, my values, my insecurities, pains, and prejudices become the corral where my thoughts are held captive. That's where they feed and breed and impact every aspect of my life. And that, he says, is not a pleasant image. But did you catch? Our thoughts will obey someone. Who is it that they are obeying? Is it obeying the culture who says, this is what you must think? This is what you have to say or think about XYZ situation. This is what you must think in regards to this position. This is what is true. And is it? And what is the standard? Christian, at the very core of your thinking, in your initial thinking about things, do war with yourself. Go to war with your thoughts. If we can say it like this, commit treason with your thoughts so that you can remind yourself again and again that your loyalties lie with Jesus first and Jesus always. But don't let your thoughts win the day. Don't let up the bombing and don't give up and let them win. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 speaks to this warfare analogy that we just gave. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of, Christ, of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We go to war. We destroy arguments, whether they're someone else's or they're my own. We hold every thought captive to obey Christ. So when we come up against thoughts that are portrayed or given to us or thoughts that arise from within us that most likely are informed from outside sources at some point, but those thoughts that arise within us or come from the outside to us, we take those captive and ask, is this true? Is this pure? Is this lovely? Is this honorable, commendable? Is this glorifying to God himself? So that we as God's people, not only are we marinating on the gospel, allowing it to affect our relationships outside of us, but we're also thinking holy thoughts, marinating on gospel truths, thinking God's thoughts, Real quickly, what that doesn't mean, I don't think, is that we can only think about Bible verses. That we can only think about crosses and Noah's arks and Bible stories and Christian things. Because we're flooded with all these other things around us. So we're beginning to see, how do I think about the world that is around me? Who is it that I'm listening to? Who is it that's ruling the way that I think about these things? If as a Christian, I desire to think holy thoughts, think the way that God commands us to think, then I have to begin to pull myself, my way of thinking, my ideas off the throne of my mind and only allow God that place. That looks like repenting regularly of my thoughts, repenting regularly, so much so because we do this so regularly. 
On our own, we are just like those in Noah's day. As Genesis 6 says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. On our own, before coming to Christ, that is our mind. Every thought of his heart, only evil continually. And yet, if you remember, as we read in 2 Corinthians, we're not fighting just a warfare against the flesh, but we have divine power. We've been given divine power against it to be able to take every thought captive, to be able to not only think about what we think about, but, but to destroy those strongholds of how we used to think about things or those battles we used to face that we don't have to be relegated to face the rest of our lives. We are not held prisoners to our thoughts now and forever. They can be defeated in Christ. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. Jesus says that all sin starts in our minds. So let's go to war in our minds. Let's go to war with, it, with what we are thinking and not let it go from there to our heart and to our behaviors. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that the things that you think about are actually committing the sins that you were commanded not to do. He says, hate is the same as murder. Lust is the same as adultery. The characteristics of what we are to think are clear enough. When we don't do that, we know that this is sin. May as God's people, we continue to repent regularly and be able to see that these are not things we want to be thinking about. These are not things that please God. They're not things that surround the gospel. If we're having trouble in relationships, maybe it's not so much looking at the other person. Now, if they would change these things, let's make a list. What things do they need to change so that we can get along? But maybe it's actually beginning in our own mind. What am I thinking about this person? Where does my mind go? What fantasies am I holding for against them? What am I thinking in regards to this person and how might God continue to help me to do business there so that it flows to here? And this heart, instead of holding against them, now swells for them. I want to encourage you this week. It doesn't often happen, not all the time that it comes to mind maybe, but if, if there comes to your mind a relationship that you know is, at least on your end, is not one that bubbles you with excitement. You just can't wait to see this person. That feeling is not necessarily there. To maybe be thinking this way. How is it that I need to, right here, begin to shape what I think about them? Ask God to help me. Do war with the thoughts that I think in regards to them. That my heart would be swelled with love for them instead of holding back. And there's still boundaries there with love. But instead of holding back and being sour or dour towards them, be working on what it is that we are thinking of. The characteristics that are given here, true, lovely, commendable, honorable, of what we are to think about are clear. The words easy to define, and we get a good idea of what it is we're talking about. There even seems to be some overlap in them. But having a list like this, I think, does two things for us. One, tells us what not to think about. Do not be thinking on things that are false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, unlovely, and not commendable. So go to war by looking at what it is you're already thinking about, and asking some serious spiritual questions regarding this. Is this what God wants me to think about? Is this good and wise and loving? But then also not thinking on certain things, not going there. 
Continuing to stop yourself from thinking those thoughts, not dwelling on lies. Don't allow people who are lying to you uh, about God, about gender and sexuality, lies about sex before marriage, lies about what the Bible says, lies about who you are in Christ. Don't allow those to rule your thinking. Don't listen to lies, but go to Scripture for truth. Be able to know God's Word enough to know that this is a lie. This is not true. I don't want to dwell on this. I don't want to get my information from this. I don't want to move on from here. Don't think on impure things that you have seen or done before. When they come into your mind, fight them. Do war on them. Dethrone them. Shine the light of God's Word and accountability on them. Do whatever it takes. Jesus in the New Testament goes pretty uh, radical in that way, doesn't he? If your eye is going to offend you, what should you do? I don't know, maybe put a patch over it, maybe wear some dark glasses, maybe just kind of hold your eye over it when you walk around, that might help. These are some pretty good tips. That's what we would want to do. What's safe and easy? Jesus is like, no, you know what you want to do? You're going to take a spoon and you're going to spoon that eye out of your head. You got to get it out of there. Get it out and stop the whole problem. Go to, be willing to go to that extreme. Genuinely repentant people don't set up all of these things, fences, to make things safe and easy for them, directing how they should and should not walk through this journey, but say, God, whatever it takes, do whatever it takes in me to keep me loving the gospel and repenting regularly. May we as God's people do that, first and foremost, in the way that we think. God, whatever it takes, please rid these thoughts of this person or this situation or this past sin that I dwelt on. Take these things from me. Beg God to remove them. Asking other people to come alongside you. Don't think about those things that God said is wrong. Don't dwell on what you think is an injustice. Don't keep thinking about hurts done to you, but trust the judge of all the earth who always does what is just and right. You are not called to be the judge, either in situations that affect you or ones you see on the nightly news. We are not the judge. We are not the ones who know everything in regards to what is happening all over the world. But we trust God with them. And we think on things that are true, and we get how we view justice from the Bible, not from our culture, and certainly not from our own hurt feelings. Not only does a list like this tell us the types of thoughts we should not think about, we could take the negatives with each one, but this list reminds us that there are things that God declares in his perspective, that are true, that are honorable, that God says there are things that are just and pure and lovely and commendable. And I want you to think on all these types of things. You, too often we can look at God in the way of saying, God is a killjoy, uh, cosmic killjoy, and he takes away all of my fun. He says, you can't think about all those things. You got to think about these things. But what if it's the exact opposite? Don't take offense to this, but what if you're the killjoy? What if you're the one saying, I want to think about all of these things, and you got this small little pocket of things, and some of them are bad, and some of them are okay, and some of them are pretty good, but you got these things, and you're like, I like these things. I want to think about these things. And God says, hey, you know what? I've got this storehouse of incredible things over here. You want to come over and check out my things you can think about that'll, let's use the phrase, blow your mind? No, no, really, I'm good over here. 
What if instead Jesus is saying, or Paul in writing this command to us, is saying there are types of thoughts to think about, all these types of just, all these things that are just, all these things that are lovely, all these things that are commendable. Because if we were to be asked right now, hey, tell me, what is something commendable? Here's one or two things maybe. But all of a sudden, you talk to the God of the universe who has made all things and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. God, can you give us a few things that are commendable? Let me know when you're ready. Begin to think about all these things that God calls us to think about. The list like this lets us know that there are types of thoughts that God has given to us, things that he declares this is good and true and just and pure, lovely and commendable, things that are worthy of praise and excellent. God has things like that for you and for me to think about. Doesn't that sound much better than thinking on things that make you feel gross inside or guilty or sad? Reminds us that these things, types of things are out there, that God has given us things that he deems are lovely and honorable, true, just, pure, and commendable. And when we think God's thoughts, or in these ways that Paul is commanding, a whole new world is opened up to us. Now we can see more of God's kingdom, God's glory, and God's grace, more of his beauty, When our thoughts obey you, we see the world and people through your eyes. Our emotions, Scotty Smith says, get fueled with grace, not just triggered by pain. Our choices get shaped by you and what matters to you, not merely by our worries, our whims, or our wishes. When our thoughts obey you, we see the world and people through your eyes. Now, don't you think if we were to do that, that that would change the way we have relationships with other people? Don't you think that this command would help Euodia and Syntyche several verses earlier if they were able to think God's thoughts and see one another through God's eyes? How does God view that person that may drive you crazy? Lovely, honorable, because they are made in his image and after his likeness. What does God say about men sacrificing for the good flourishing of their wives? Does God say that that's wimpy or henpecked wussies? How about commendable, worthy of praise? Children, what does God say when you obey your parents, even if it's not something you want to do right then, and even if you have friends right there and you're trying to look cool in front of them? What does God say when you obey your parents? Does he call it stupid, not cool, lame? Or what does he call it? Honorable, excellent, well done. What does God say about loving those who have come into our country illegally, but who have nothing and know relatively no one? What does God say about those who flaunt a much different lifestyle than you or I might think is acceptable or godly? And what does God say about those who hold a different position on abortion or Israel or racial injustices? What does he say? Not, well, I think this, or I heard this. Your thoughts, my thoughts are not our own to think and to hold on to and not be responsible for, but are to be given over to Christ. He wants our time. He wants our love. He wants our money, our idols, and he wants our thoughts. He wants all of us. And truth be told, you want him to have all of you. 
Because then and only then are you seeing what is true, good, and beautiful for the very first time through his eyes. God in his common grace to all men allows us to find beauty and goodness in this life, whether that's through sunsets, a great spouse, babies being born, restored old cars, a delicious dessert, a perfectly laid out cast from a fly line, all of these beautiful things we can enjoy in this life and all can enjoy them together, but there is so much more than that. Those only wet the whistle of all that God desires you to see when you submit your thoughts to him. So think his thoughts. Think on these things. And the second imperative that is given in the next verse is then given, practice these things. What you have seen, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So think on these things and practice these things. All of these things we've been talking about, I'm going to say throughout this whole letter, church, all of these things regarding the gospel, let's practice these things. What you have learned from me, what you received from me, maybe when I was first there with you and planted the church a dozen years ago, or now in this letter, what you have received from me, other letters, what you have heard and seen in my life and the way that I've been an example to you, practice what it is that you have received. What kinds of things has Paul shown them? Well, just in this letter to the church, he has shown them a sacrifice for the cause of the gospel. He has shown them to have joy no matter what circumstances they face, even if it's imprisonment, even if there are other people who are preaching, desiring to harm you in their preaching, to have joy in the midst of that. He's shown them a desire to be with God above all things, a deep love and affection for God's people, a desire to put others' needs above his own a love for the gospel above all else, a desire to raise up other men to serve the church when he cannot, rejecting any confidence in himself, praying about everything, straining towards Christ, his confidence in his eternal home with Jesus and a desire to live worthy of the gospel. In these things that you have heard and received and learned and seen in me, practice these things. Practice those types of things. And we all know that practice is not really all that much fun. It's not the game. It's not the big show. It's seemingly random and uninteresting things. Sometimes you watch a practice and see guys doing some running, some sprints, some dribbling drills, depending on what sport it is. Uh, soccer, bat- you got some toe t- touches and shooting here. And then we're going to go over here and we're going to learn some passing. And okay, let's back and we're going to do some more sprints. And then we're going to do this. And you kind of go in, is this really how they're going to play the game? Well, no, they're not going to do sprints and these things in that way and during the game, but all of these things a good coach will know are going to help them. But the odds are you're practicing maybe five to one in playing games. You practice five days a week, you play one game. Professionals still do this. They practice all week to play one game on Sunday. The game you'll watch today after church, those guys have been practicing all week. They've been straining their bodies, lifting weights, working out, pushing their bodies beyond all limits. All we see is Sunday. It's easy for me to say, how did you drop that catch? And the guy's like, because I'm running 45 miles an hour. You would drop it as well. You wouldn't even be close to it. But how you practice is how you're going to play. What, are, what is it that you and I are practicing daily? What is it that you and I are doing 
in regards to our spiritual walk that maybe only God sees? What is it that we are thinking about and doing? Are we doing spiritual warfare regularly? How are we going about practicing in regards to spiritual matters? Is it something that we do once or twice and all of a sudden we're going, man, I kind of... It's kind of boring to me, or I just don't get it. I don't see the benefits yet. I read my Bible three times this week, and I just, I'm, I'm not God yet. I just don't understand it all. Keep practicing. Professionals, keep practicing. You talk to pastors who are retired, and I bet they're still reading their Bibles, hopefully. Professors who studied God's Word for 40 years, still reading their Bibles, still getting things out of it. One of the most encouraging conversations I have with anyone in this church, no offense to all the rest of you, is a guy who is over 100 years old, and he comes to my office every once in a while, and he says, I just want to tell you what I've been learning in God's Word lately. He didn't stop practicing. You don't get to stop, and he sees the benefit of regularly practicing. That impacts me. I see that, and I go, then I need to practice. I need to keep practicing and reading God's word and growing in it. There was only a way in which we could be regularly reminded to practice. If there was only a way that God would give the local church that we might learn and see and practice with one another. It's hard to do things on your own, right? You need a team. But if there was only a way where we could come together regularly to be able to help one another say, hey, how, are, how is it your thoughts going this week? How are you thinking? How are you practicing? How has it gone this last week? If there was only a way, right, where we could do that, then maybe we could be helpful for one another. And maybe we as a team, as a church, a family, could grow up and help one another see Jesus face to face and be told, well done. The beauty is that Paul is writing all of these things. We've looked at for months to a church who regularly has an opportunity to practice just like you and I do. And we're practicing for the rest of our lives for the big show, for the one day the one big game where we come together and we see Jesus, where we're not having to work to do anything for it. He comes and receives us back to himself. And this Sunday morning gathering, we get to come together to be able to hear God's word, to hear it and go, oh, that's how you read scripture. Oh, that's what that passage means. Oh, that. I talked to someone and they shared with me what they learned from God's word. It was so helpful. I learned in Sunday school this morning, this is how to better grow in interacting with one another or what a healthy church is like. God doesn't throw you out into the world on your own and say, hey, you've got this. Go try and think really holy thoughts and, uh, and practice all the things that you learn from other people. Now go get them, tiger. You're on your own. We would be lost. And yet he gives us a local church. He gives us one another. He gives us and commands this time together so that we can come and commiserate with each other about how quickly we forgot. Yeah, this week I forgot who I am, who I am in Christ. This week I forgot to even think about what I think about. This week I didn't practice at all. Man, I need you to help me. I need you to pray. I need to text on Monday because I forget too quickly. We come together regularly to be reminded of our identity in Christ, of his saving love for us, 
that he holds the worlds in his hands, that he will win in the end, that he is the just judge, that all that we heard on the news and all that we heard and saw is not reality. God is reality. And may God be helping to continue to help us translate what it is that we're seeing in the culture around us. In the end, the goal is not just better thoughts or more consistent practice, but it is drawing near to him. It is drawing near to God who calls us and commands us to do these things. It is a growing intimacy with our Savior and King. Recognizing what is praiseworthy invites us to praise the one who is drawing near. The closer we are getting to thinking thoughts that please God, the closer we are getting to God himself. This passage is not just a list of commands to do these things and then get discouraged when we don't. And then come together, help one another, and then try to do them again. But notice this passage is surrounded, sandwiched between two phrases. Look at verse 7 of Philippians chapter 4. Verse 7, we tied it in with last week, but look how this and another verse will sandwich in our text today. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Helpful with anxiety, rejoicing in all circumstances, the peace of God. And then verse 9 ends this way, and the God of peace will be with you. Not only peace that passes understanding, that for you and I is, oh, I can put my head on my pillow and sleep a good night, knowing that God's peace is with me. Well, that is helpful. But then Paul ends and instead inverts the phrase, not the peace of God, but now the God of peace. God himself will be with you. In case you were forgetting, God's peace comes through him. I'm going to remind you at the end. Think these thoughts. Practice these things that you have heard and seen and have learned. The peace and the God of peace himself will be with you. God's peace comes by God himself being with us and in no other way. The God of peace himself will be with us. That is the great reward both now and for eternity. And the God who has made our peace with him is with us this morning. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The God who has made us to be at peace with God, Christ himself who came and gave his perfect sinless life for your sins, the God who has made peace with God himself is with us this morning. And it is this morning that we get to reflect on the peace that God has made through his son Jesus as we participate together in the Lord's Supper. God has made us to not be no longer enemies of God. Only because of our sins and his wrath being against us because of our sins and justly so. But God sent his only son that he might make there to be peace where there was enmity. Where there was wrath and there was anger towards us in our sins. God now has made peace through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on our behalf. And it is to that sacrifice and that person of Christ that this morning we get to look to. And remember, the reason we can come this morning and the reason we can think of the gospel is because of the one who came and gave his life for us and has declared us to be at peace with God because we have trusted in Christ for our salvation and not in our own selves, but we have trusted in him to redeem us and to save us. This morning we get to celebrate his making our peace when he suffered and died on the cross for our sins 
knowing that we serve a resurrected Christ, a resurrected Savior who now in heaven continues to seek our peace with God by making intercession for us. That God of peace is not one who is passive, but who has acted in eternity and acts even now today on yours and on my behalf. And to that we celebrate. So this morning we're going to take up the Lord's Supper, and it's a time where we come down and receive the elements of the bread and of the juice that represent the body and blood of Jesus that was sacrificed on our behalf. And this is for Christians, those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Whether you're a member of another church and just visiting, or you're part of this local body, if you are a repentant Christian who has trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, then come celebrate the God who has made you to be at peace with himself. And for those of you who say, I have never had that, I've never had an opportunity to hear the gospel, I've never repented of my sins, I don't know this God and the peace that you're talking about, then brother or sister, we would desperately love to talk with you. We are praying for you, and we would love to talk with you after the service this morning. But for those who are Christians, then you come. We're going to have music playing, giving you an opportunity as quiet music plays to be able to pray, to be able to repent of known sins, to be able to ask God to help us with what it is we're thinking about, doing battle with our thoughts and desiring to follow after Christ more And then come, come and celebrate with us that the body of Christ was broken for you. His blood was poured out for your sins and for mine. And rejoice in the redemption that has come to you at a great price to our Lord. So let us pray. As the music plays, uh, you pray and then we'll come.